This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice each day to follow Christ outside the walls. For the last several weeks, we have been exploring uh, and reimagining a post-quarantine church, taking note of the things that we do, uh, recognizing that many of those things are, are merely um, just the way we've become accustomed to behaving and not necessarily something that is central to who we are as church. So we've been looking at, at basically the practices of the church and saying, okay, well, when we, when we finally get out of this quarantine and we're able to meet back together again, um, we're going to take for granted that things are going to be a little bit different. And with that being the case, what is it going to look like for us to be church? Now, uh, last week we had a great conversation with Mike Aquilina as we talked about patristics in poetry and uh, and just a really wide-ranging conversation. But one of the things that we talked about was in order to move forward and to reimagine a post-quarantine church, sometimes we have to look backwards and see how things were done in the past. Uh, because we tend to look at our current experience of where we are right now and think, this is the way we've always done it. Um, now, if, you, if you've spent any amount of time around uh, church work at all, whether as a volunteer or uh, maybe a member of the church staff, you know that that phrase comes up a lot. This is the way we've always done it. But uh, in Oklahoma... When I was there in the Diocese of Tulsa, I had a, I think this was a conversation I had with Father Kerry Wakulich, who at the time was at the University of Tulsa uh, Newman Center, the Philip Neary Newman Center there. And um, I believe that it was him. If it wasn't, Father, uh, forgive me. Um, but here in the conversation was, you know, every four years you get an entirely new crop of people. And so it doesn't take too terribly long uh, before you can change, quote unquote, the way we've always done it. Uh, and, and so that's in a very small time scale, uh, in a very uh, truncated way, it illustrates something that happens on the larger scale as well. We begin to say things like, this is the way we've always done it. But if we really begin to examine the way that the church has operated over decades and centuries, we can very quickly see that, no, this really is a, um, a natural progression and a natural evolution of the way that we've always done it. But it is, in fact, quite different from how we used to operate. So it's very easy, as we are looking at revamping things um, and recognizing that the way we've always done it is not necessarily essential, it, it is a temptation to begin to look at things that really are the way we've always done it, things that really are central to who we are and to our identity. So in the process of reimagining a post-quarantine church, we have to begin to define what are those things that are essential and what are those things, to use the, the language of philosophy, that are accidental right? The essence and the accidents. What are the things that make the church the church? And what are things that are just kind of how the church operates at any given point in time in history? Now, one of those things that is essential to the church being the church 
is our bishops and our priests. It is the papacy in a very particular way. This is an essential to who we are as the church. Now, this is something that's very important to me because I grew up in a tradition outside of Catholicism that that operated in this weird structure of um, there were there, there was a clerical state in the place where I came from in Methodism. Um, you had uh, bishops, although they acted in a very different way and f- filled a very different role than bishops in the Catholic Church, but we use the same language. Uh, and we had uh, we had presbyters or elders, right? Um, and then there was over them uh, the uh, the governing body was basically a representative democracy that ended up being, uh, you know, every four years the whole uh, all the Methodists in the whole wide world gathered together and uh, and voted on things, and inevitably when you have that happen uh, and you you begin to operate by majority rules, you're going to end up in small ways and in large ways departing from the deposit of faith. And so for me, coming into the Catholic Church from that place, I put a lot of stock in the papacy. Uh, It's one of the things that gives me great comfort because I watched what happens when you end up, even in the most well-meaning way, where you end up when you operate under majority rule. Uh, it becomes exceptionally political, and it becomes uh, this exercise in holding on to one or two really important things and watching the other things that are really also important drift further and further away from that the positive faith. Now, I've known a lot of, of people who have come into the church, um, people who I uh, was in graduate school with at, at Protestant Seminary, uh, people who have um, had longer journeys than I have and fought long and hard within their previous faith tradition uh, for orthodoxy, for what they believed was true and what was right. Uh, and I've watched them, many of them, uh, come into the church thinking that it would be a respite and then quickly find opponents and quickly find people to disagree with and quickly enter into that same kind of hold the line mentality as if the the totality and the um, the the integrity and security of the faith depended on them holding holding firm and i've watched some of those people uh, get to the place where they were convinced that they were right over and above the papacy and decide that uh, now, the papacy had erred, and they needed to go and move on to a different location. Uh, that's never been a temptation for me, partly because I watched the fighting, and, and I realized that when I came into the Catholic Church, and part of this was I came into the Catholic Church not fully convinced. What I was fully convinced of was that the church was telling the truth and had the authority uh, to to teach me that there were things I did not understand. There were things that I, I really couldn't completely fathom. And honestly, some things that I still don't fathom. But what I do is I trust the church. I trust that Jesus was telling the truth when he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I believe that 
God is true to his promises and that he will preserve the church. And he does that in one way through the papacy. Uh, And so even if I disagree with the Pope, it doesn't really bother me because what I am convinced of is that God will preserve his church and he won't let a a Pope who is acting in bad faith um, change things that are essential to the core of who we are as church. I have that confidence, not in the Pope, in this Pope or any other Pope. I have that confidence, not in the hierarchy of the church. I have that confidence because of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to be just absolutely transparent here. Um, I know that there are people who are are frustrated or concerned about uh, what they see in the news with Pope Francis. And, and I would come back and say this. I absolutely love Pope Francis because of my perspective of what's going on here. But I would, I would just remind you that the media's whole purpose, Catholic media and secular media, is to get you to pay attention. They want, you, they want their, your eyes on them. And so sometimes things get pretty sensational, taken out of context, moved very quickly for the sake of a scoop. And I've come to the, the conclusion that if I will wait and sit back and relax and calm down, eventually I'm going to see what actually happened. I'm going to see the full context and the full uh, transcript and anything else. And I have found great peace in that. Um, What I love about Pope Francis is he is catching the ears of people who thought they knew what to expect out of a Pope and in the negative sense. And he's getting their attention and they're beginning to listen And this is the way of evangelization. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that you're always going to understand everything, but if you watch Jesus and his apostles and disciples, they didn't always understand what he was doing either. And so I want to encourage you, trust the Holy Spirit. If you are concerned, uh, trust the Holy Spirit. This is one of my prayers. It's out of Psalm 131, a psalm of ascents. And David says, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are my eyes haughty. I do not busy myself with great matters, with things too sublime for me. Rather, I have stilled my soul. Like a weaned child to its mother, weaned is my soul. Israel, hope in the Lord, now and forevermore. And I would say to you, hope in the Lord, now and forevermore. Don't let your faith be shaken. Don't uh, if you are in a place where you are uh, uncertain, where you're confused, where you may even feel hurt, take that to the foot of the cross. Take that to um, to adoration. Spend time with Christ. Because this, this place of encounter, I think that this, and again, this is just my perspective, I think that this is where Pope Francis is, is leading, leading us to a place of encounter. And not only us who are within the church, but to the lost sheep as well, bringing them to a place where their expectations of negative things are shaken and they can open their eyes to see the beauty and the love of the Lord that God has for them where they are. So today we're going to be talking a little bit more about the papacy in general. We're going to be talking not about Pope Francis, 
Uh, and really the things up until that last sentence, the things that we've been talking about have not been about Pope Francis, but about the papacy. Uh, this is something that sets us as Catholics apart. Our belief that God has given us the successor to the apostles and the successor to Peter, this shepherd of shepherds, this servant of the servants of God. And today we're going to be talking with Joe Heschmeyer, who makes a pretty audacious claim. He makes the claim that the papacy is not only important, but that it's the most distinctive doctrine of the Catholic Church. We're going to talk to him about what he means by that. What do you mean the most distinctive doctrine? He's got a new book out called Pope Peter, Defending the Most Distinctive Doctrine of the Church in Times of Crisis. Always good to have Joe on the show, uh, one of my favorite guests. One of these days, we're going to see each other face-to-face, but until then, until quarantine allows, we'll just have to deal with over the airwaves. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Great to be back. So uh, you, uh, you've been busy because we just talked to you about a new book that you had, and uh, all of a sudden you have another new book. So <laughs> this one is called Pope Peter, Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in Times of Crisis, put out by Catholic Answers. You can find it by going to catholic.com. Uh, Joe, so in this time of crisis, both, I mean, <laughs> really, uh, 2020 has just kind of become synonymous with the term crisis, right? We've got uh, so much going on, both with the, with the quarantine, with the state of affairs in the world. But I'm assuming that you were also talking a little bit about the crises that we have experienced in, in the church over the last year yeah, and a half, I'm, couple I'm glad years. you put it in, in the plural. You know, one of the critiques I got for the title was that it should be in time of crises. Right. And, you know, the book is somehow still underestimating how bad things are and can be. You know, there's a, there's a quote from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien who says, um, I, I'm a Christian and in fact a Roman Catholic, and I've, I've come, and this is a paraphrase, I've come to believe that, uh, that history is the, the, the long uh, defeat with glimpses of final victory. And yeah. We just kind of expect, oh, well, everything's going to get better and everything's going to work out. And Tolkien's like, well, yeah, everything's going to work out eventually. But this is, in the meantime, uh, what we should expect. We should expect for things to be difficult. We should expect for even sometimes life to be a slog, but that's okay. Yeah, and and especially when we're looking at the church particularly. There's a great line from Hilaire Belloc uh, where he talks about his own belief in the church. He says, uh, the Catholic church is an institution I am bound to hold divine, but for unbelievers, the proof of its divinity might be found in the fact that no merely human institution conducted with such knavish imbecility would have lasted a fortnight. Uh, It's it's very much not a kind of triumphalistic defense Mm -hmm. of the church. It's not become Catholic because we're all so smart and so holy and we all have our acts together. It's more like come and join the mess because... This is where God has pity on, on the most embarrassing and miserable of his sins. Uh, there's while we're on while we're on little pithy quotes. The other one that I love is uh, from Saint John the Twenty Third, who was asked how many people work in the Vatican, and he said <laughs> about half of them. About half of them, yeah. So uh, we understand with a little bit of self deprecation that as an institution, um, we're, the Catholic Church is maybe a little bit less organized. In fact, I heard someone else say, um, uh, I, "I'm a Catholic because I don't believe in organized religion." Exactly. So we're talking a little bit about the papacy, which is uh, one of these central pillars of what it means for us to be Catholic. Um, and so you've got this book 
uh, for Pope Peter defending the church's most distinctive doctrine in times of crisis. Uh, there's a couple of things that I want to ask you about. One, why this, why now? Uh, and two, what do you mean by most distinctive doctrine? Well, those questions, I'd like to answer them in reverse order, because the most distinctive is one of the reasons why this, why now? Um, by most distinctive, I'm the word choice is intentional. I'm not saying the papacy is the most important doctrine. It's more important that you believe in the real presence in the Eucharist. Uh, it's more important that you believe in the divinity of Jesus. It's more important that you believe in God. You can be Orthodox and believe in the real presence. You can be Protestant and believe in the divinity of Jesus. You can be Jewish and believe in the existence of God. And so the question of should I or should I not be a Catholic isn't adequately answered by those more important questions. And, and in the same way that the example I've, I've been kind of given is if you were deciding between buying a car or buying a truck, the engine is the most important part. But that's not going to distinguish which one you want. What's going to distinguish it is the truck bed. If you're planning on you know hauling lumber or something, uh, then you should get a truck. If you're planning on having a bunch of kids and having them drive with you, you should get a car. You know, like it's the presence or absence of the truck bed that's more distinctive. Not as, to say more. As someone with a bunch of kids, uh, I don't fit in a car. <laughs> that's a good point. Or get a big enough truck right. and just all ride in the back. So um, that answers the most distinctive. But but why why now? Why is this book um, and and this line of argument? And, and apologetic, so important at this time of crisis, because that's the other thing, the most yeah. distinctive doctrine, quote, in times of crisis, why there specifically? Yeah, because uh, right now, I think we're seeing with Pope Francis, uh, a lot of people who are confused and concerned, and it probably wouldn't be putting too fine a point on it to say freaking out about him, but, you know, there is a lot of concern and consultation. And some of that is based on him saying legitimately confusing or seemingly scandalous things. Some of that is is maybe just not reading things he's said uh, charitably or not reading them in the right context. And we can get much deeper into the particulars and minutia there. Uh, but the, the fact is, right now, a lot of Catholics are concerned about the papacy. And a lot of people who aren't Catholic are seeing these other things, you know, uh, so... 2018 had the Pennsylvania grand jury report that showed this pattern of cover-up and abuse. And, and people are very reasonably asking, like, why in the world are you Catholic right now? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, if you can be a, a perfectly content Methodist or something like that, why be Catholic with all of these, you know, scandals and things that, that kind of mark association with, with being particularly Catholic? And to really give an adequate answer to that question is really going to be to say something like, well, I believe Jesus founded the Catholic Church. And one of the reasons I believe Jesus founded the Catholic Church is because of the papacy. And so in some ways, it's just uh, the conversation has become more imminent and more urgent right now uh, because people are leaving in droves, because people are genuinely at a loss uh, for why anyone would stay Catholic. I, after some of, you know, some of the scandals two years ago, I had people I hadn't talked to since high school tagging me on Facebook saying, how in the world are you still Catholic? And, and we can either get defensive about that or say, that's a good question. Let me give you a better answer. Let me explain why, despite all the knavish imbecility or worse that may exist, I'm going to remain Catholic. Mm -hmm. But it's not about, you know, who the human leaders are. 
plus the papacy is still a really important part of that story. Yeah. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer, instructor at Holy Family School of Faith in Kansas City. Um, we had a conversation a little bit about this some time ago in terms of how how we handle disagreement and what we owe to the other person and and the kind of um, erinic conversation th- that's needed when someone comes up with maybe even a little bit of a uh, an antagonism because behind that antagonism is generally a, a true question. So uh, this is um, this is of interest to me because I I was not a content Methodist, right? I came into the Catholic Church back in 2011. Um, and I've seen my fair share of converts who have come in because of some disaffection uh, from their previous tradition, only to find disaffection in the Catholic Church and then move on. Uh, and for me, uh, as I was coming into the Catholic Church, there was this sense of, I'm not coming in because the Catholic Church agrees with me, or even because I agree with the Catholic Church. I'm coming into the Catholic Church finally uh, and ultimately, because I see that the church is true, and I'm going to have to submit myself to that, to the place where even if my understanding of truth doesn't really agree with the church, I have to then find the place and wrestle with that belief until such time as I can come to accept it. Some people would say this is blind belief, but I think it's actually harder to profess and believe, because it's very easy to and that's something that we say in coming to the church. I profess and believe all that the Catholic Church teaches and proclaims to be revealed by God. Uh, it's one thing to profess it. It's another thing to believe it. And so I'm saying, okay, I'm going to wrestle with this. I'm going to profess it. And then I'm going to wrap my head around it and hold on to it until morning comes and the hip gets displaced uh, and wrestle with this thought until I can profess and believe it, uh, which I think is a, a difficult prospect but a necessary one in understanding my place in the church under the magisterium. Yeah, I think that's very well put. I think there's a good distinction to kind of draw out there between what theologians call religious assent and what's called real assent. Uh, real assent is where we want to end up on everything, where we say X is true. I understand why X is true. This is why I believe it. You know, here's the data that supports X. But there's also this place of religious assent, which is just saying, okay, well, I believe uh, the church is who she says she is, or I believe scripture is inspired by God. I believe when Jesus says X, even though I don't understand. So there's a place for religious assent, especially in the early days. Um, And especially if you're not a theologian, like people believe in the Trinity without having to explain to you how and why the Trinity works. Because if we required that, there would be virtually no Orthodox Christian. I mean, to have a, a faith that you had to be a brilliant theologian to profess, isn't the church Christ founded, right? Like he founds a church, uh, you know, and Isaiah says to create a house of prayer for all people. This idea that everyone from the highest to the lowest, from the most intellectual to the least intellectual needs to have a home in the church. And so if we required just Orthodox erudition and brilliance to be able to, to walk in, we're creating a, a boundary that's way too high. Rather, and Aquinas talks about this between what he calls the majores or the maiores, like the major, like the big ones, and the small sheep, the minores, that the the people in charge, the people running the show, and here, like, think bishops, but also think, like, theologians, think people whose job it is to teach. Uh, it's important 
for those people to know the why. It's important for them to get to the real ascent. But for the ordinary believer in the pews, that's great if you want to go down that road, but it's not some sort of requirement for your salvation that you understand the way predestination works or that you understand all of the, you know, uh, the subtle distinctions in theological doctrines. Those things are, again, they're, they're wonderful if you can get the how and the why, uh, but it's more than is required. And so one of the reasons this is important is that Protestantism sort of lacks this, right? Like a friend of mine who is a, a former Methodist himself was saying one of the things he realized is that to know he was an Orthodox Christian, he couldn't just trust that the visible church had it right. He couldn't just trust like all the councils in history. There was no sense of being able to trust a pope or any other figure. He had to personally investigate every issue. And then it was just overwhelming for him because he took the question of orthodoxy that seriously that he wasn't just going to assume, well, because people have always thought this for 2,000 years, it must be true. Because as a Protestant, he had to say, well, for 1,500 years, they believed these other things that I don't believe. Mm -hmm. So in theory, everyone could be wrong except me. And he, he realized pretty quickly, uh, I think, kind of the absurdity of that view. And I, I dare say the hubris of that view, the idea that everyone's a heretic but me or everybody's mistaken except just me, uh, the odds of that being right are so minuscule, so fleeting, that it really logically makes more sense to say the church that's been proclaiming this for 2,000 years, it has more than a billion members. The odds on any given doctrine that that church is right and I'm wrong are at least a billion to one. <laughs> uh, like, I would have to, to have some pretty overwhelming reason to think everybody's wrong but me. And, and that reason just doesn't present itself, because it also presents a, a kind of strange view of the way the church might work. Well, and, and having been in that position myself uh, of going, you know, you go to the church that fits, you go to the church that you feel most at home in, um, even within my own denomination at the time, uh, there was a sense of, okay, well, let me find out which of these churches that, that identifies as this denomination which ones are going to hold to the proper belief? Because there's not really any sense of cohesion within those denominations. So there, there tends to be, in the Protestant view, an effort at compartmentalizing. Here, here's what I believe. Here, you, I agree with you on this, but not on that. And you're over here, and I'm over there. Uh, whereas there is that great Catholic principle of here comes everyone. I'm going to be sitting next to you in mass, and I probably disagree with you uh, about politics, about education uh, policy, about a whole bunch of other things, but I'm going to go and I'm going to receive the Eucharist right next to you, and we are equal in this way in the eyes of God. When we come back uh, from this break, we're going to continue this conversation with Joe Heschmeyer, specifically in how the papacy uh, is uh, the, the antidote to that, that sentiment. We're talking with Joe Heschmeyer, who's an instructor at Holy Family School of Faith, the author of a new book, Pope Peter, Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in Times of Crisis. Get it at Catholic Answers, catholic.com. There's much more coming up right after this. So join the ongoing conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Don't go anywhere. There's much more right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and it's always my pleasure to have Joe Heschmeyer here on the show. Uh, we just had him on not too terribly long ago, talking about a new book uh, that he had, talking about his identity in Christ, and that, that conversation went a very different direction than I expected the book to go, and I was really just deeply fascinated in uh, in your your take on that since that time I, I had the the pdf book of it but um i acquired the uh, the paper bound book and i encourage everyone to pick up that book from our sunday visitor uh, but now just a little bit uh what a couple of months down the road you've got another book pope peter defending the church's most distinctive doctrine in times of crisis uh, available on Catholic Answers, catholic.org. And just before the break, we were talking a little bit about um, my own history and experience as a Protestant and this uh, this idea of the compartmentalization that's kind of intrinsic into the mindset of, of Protestant. And you had something that you wanted to comment on that. Yeah, so I, I was really glad you mentioned that because I think as a Catholic, this is one of the things that I found most confusing the more I got to understand Protestantism. Um, like I think, I think the Catholic assumption about Protestantism is twofold. Number one, that the denominational line split around the biggest issues. You know, that like every Presbyterian is closer to each other than any Presbyterian is to a Baptist, say. And that's just totally untrue. Uh, and, and second, that within a denomination, there's more or less a general agreed upon body of belief. And that you could disprove Presbyterianism by just saying, oh, well, you know, John Knox taught this, and it, it's not true, therefore you shouldn't be Presbyterian. And, and it turns out, like, that's just not how denominations work at all. It's it's way weirder, it's way more confusing <laughs> than that. Uh, because a lot of the denominational lines, at least in the U.S., are around what's called church polity, like the structure of the denomination, where on actual theological issues and on social issues, there are also often these, like, gigantic doctrinal differences. So you have like more mainline and more evangelical versions of Presbyterians, of Lutherans, of Baptists, and some of them are pro-life, some of them are pro-choice, some of them are Calvinist, some of them are Arminian, and so you'll get these like really wildly differing views within the denomination, and then you'll get like these Calvinist Baptists and Calvinist Presbyterians who are actually like pretty close together but aren't in the same denomination. And the whole thing is so confusing as a Catholic because it's just not at all what we expect because we're, we're viewing like Catholicism and maybe Eastern Orthodoxy as a model for like what we're expecting when we encounter Protestantism. And those expectations just aren't true. Like the, the denominational affiliation is of less and less importance for the mm-hmm. modern Protestant believer. As a majority, a majority of Protestants switch denominations at some point in their life. Right. Uh, oh, I, I've, I have been in a Methodist church, in a, in a Baptist church, in a Presbyterian church, in a non-denominational vineyard movement, and the, there's no thought about changing. You go to the church that best fits you at that time and that location, and then uh, and yet somehow you know that there's something different about becoming a Catholic. There, there's this weight and this, ooh, do I, you know, I mean, I know I agree with them, but gosh, that's really different. Do I jump that far? That you never had, because just as much as Catholics misunderstand the structure of Protestantism, so too Protestants, uh, at least from my experience, completely misunderstand the structure and polity of 
the Catholic Church. We tend to think of it as this monolithic thing that you have to believe exactly uh, what's written and not think for yourself. And, um, you know, you just, it's kind of lockstep. Uh, and that, of course, as we all know, is also not the case. <laughs> Yeah, Here Comes Everybody is a pretty good description. And there's a lot of lively debates within the Catholic Church. I mean, take just one issue. Uh, we believe in taking care of the poor. Mm -hmm. But ask any two Catholics the best way to do that. And that could be from a political perspective. It could be just from their own individual choices and how they spend their money. And you'll probably get two different answers. On the top-level issue, they're in total harmony. But in the application in the real world, uh, the virtue of prudence uh, is, is one of these things that I think is very surprising when you become Catholic. Like, there's a lot of things where the church will refrain from telling you exactly how it has to go. And even on certain issues, there can be like, well, in our study, you know, judgment, we think you should do X, but it's still very clear if you decide you should do Y instead, you still can and and still be a faithful Catholic. So, yeah, there are some like, genuinely non-negotiable issues or genuine issues that like are articles of faith, for instance, the creed. Uh, if you say like, I don't believe in the Trinity, that's a problem. Uh, if, you know, but on a lot of these like prudential things, a lot of these things people are really confused by. If, if you decide you don't believe in a Marian apparition, you know, you don't think Mary appeared in Medjugorje, for instance, you're free to do that. Uh, even on the ones that have been church approved, like Fatima, uh, they've only been approved as worthy of belief. There's no next step where it says, and therefore you have to believe it. Mm -hmm. Like This is something that I think you're right. Uh, people misunderstand uh, how much uh, diversity of thought continues to happen. And of course, uh, I think taking Catholics as, as genuine humans would, would resolve a lot of these issues. You get a billion humans in one place. They're probably not all going to think exactly the same way. There's a, a great story from the last uh, World War where there was a debate, or maybe it was World War One. I. I don't remember. Um, yeah, it was World War One. I'm sorry. There was uh, a debate about, you know, providing Catholic priests with the British Army because, yeah, at the time they had Irish troops, so there were quite a few Catholics that were, like, in the ranks. And there was confusion among some of the members of Parliament over why they didn't just go to the French priests and... Um, so one of the Catholics was like, well, what about confession? And so one of the members of parliament was like, don't they just confess in Latin? And just kind of like naively assumed that like every Irish schoolboy was just fluent in Latin and would confess his sins, you know, uh, you know, totally fluently in Latin. The point being, yeah, we, we often misunderstand one side to the other. And there can be this, this kind of two-dimensional view of real-life Catholics. And yeah, the board is a good way to describe that. I do want to say there's one... There's one thing about the Protestant view there that I think is really important and really good and is right on the money, which is that there is a gravity to joining the Catholic Church uh, that I, I don't see in joining, you know, a particular Protestant local church. Right. I was talking with a guy uh, just a couple of days ago who just moved into the area. He's a Protestant, and he, he said he was church hopping at the time. And he was kind of interested in Catholicism, but he was looking for just a church home. He hadn't had some major theological crisis. He was just like, well, I was part of this denomination, but they're kind of far away now, so I'd like to find something a little closer. I mean, just kind of a fascinating view of, of the role. So it's good It's good that the decision to become Catholic is a weighty one. Uh, in the same way that, like, 
if you were following worldly thinkers and you jumped around from Plato to Aristotle to Socrates, whatever, no big deal. Um, but if you're saying yes or no to Jesus, that's weighty and everyone understands it's weighty in a different way. So it's good that the church that Jesus founded uh, carries that weight with it in the same way that a human institution wouldn't. Mm-hmm. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer about his new book, Pope Peter, Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in Times of Crisis. So we've, we've kind of danced around this and set the groundwork for now this discussion. Uh, why is this question of the papacy the most distinctive doctrine in the church? And, and how does that then affect the way that we have these conversations with those around us? Yeah, that's a good, good way of wording the question. Um, the basic idea is this. When Jesus says in Matthew 16, upon this rock, I will build my church, there's a lot of ink spilled about what, we, what, we, what he means by upon this rock and what we understand that to mean. But we can often overlook the I will build my church part. That the founding assumption shouldn't be what church do I most agree with. It should be Jesus said he was going to build a church. So what does that look like and where is it? And Jesus' words Putting them back in the context of Matthew 16, he says them to Peter in the context of creating the papacy. It's almost as if he's saying, go where the Pope is, go where Peter is. Uh, and that if you want to find the church that he founded, you can go there. So I, I think it's actually a fair question to those who reject the papacy as a later invention to say, well, when was it invented? Uh, by whom? Who was the first Pope? And do we see any kind of outcry? Because if, you know, if tomorrow... I created some worldwide organization with a new rival pope. You would imagine some people might have some things to say about that, right? Like Orthodox believing Christians around the world would say, hold on, wait a minute. This doesn't represent us. This is a false church, etc." So if the papacy is a later falsehood, we should expect to see a, a great deal of, of evidence historically to show the rise of the papacy as some sort of foreign influence. And, and the truth is we just don't see anything like that. So, this question of uh, of the papacy, you mentioned, I will build my church. There's a lot of also ink spilled on what does that church look like, whether or not it's a, a visible institution or just this loose conglomeration of families of people who say, I believe in Jesus and I, I have the same confession of faith that Peter had at that moment. Yeah, this is a, a great way. So in chapters two and three of the book, in chapter two, I look at kind of what doesn't this mean? And I, I trace a little bit of the Protestant thought on this, from Jan Hus and John Wycliffe to Luther and Calvin. Um, there are uh, several different Protestant theories of what the church means. You'll find people who say it's just the invisible collection of the saved. You'll find the kind of loose confederation view you just described. In the fringes of Baptist theology, there's what's called landmark Baptists, who, who believe that for 2,000 years, Baptists have actually existed. They just went by other names, and, and people didn't know they were Baptists which is a very strange kind of view of church history. Uh, so you have, like, there is, so if you're talking to someone about this, I'd say the first thing to do is find out what it is they believe the church means. And many of us have never had a lot of thought. Um, but then look at what the New Testament says. The New Testament doesn't say the church is invisible. It doesn't say it's kind of a loose confederation. It rather speaks of the church as a visible society. And Jesus describes his followers as a city on the hill. Well, it's a city because it's like a society. It's on the hill because it's visible so the world can see it. And he also describes it as a light and warns not to put it under a bushel basket, right? The famous This Little Light of Mine song is, mm-hmm. is based on this verse. Well, that's to the church. 
that's just not that's not just about like not hiding your own individual faith. That's about the followers of Christ being a visible society. And moving a little bit further, you've got Paul who says that um, that you have you know how you should act because you have the church, which is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So um, if if there is a standard that we need, we have the opportunity to look to to see how it is we should act. We have to be able to find it. Exactly. Well, and, and even more than that, if you go to Matthew eighteen, if you've got a dispute with a brother Christian, mm-hmm. you go to him first. Then you take one or two people along, uh, so that where two or more of you are gathered, Christ is there present. But then you take it to the church if that doesn't answer it. Now, there's two things worth pointing out there. First. I've seen several Protestant authors explicitly say the church is just wherever two or more are gathered. But if you read what Jesus says in Matthew 18, the two or more gathered, that's the the middle step. There's Mm -hmm. one more step of going to the church. He clearly envisions the church as something more than that. Well, and it's it's also, in this case, in the Matthew 18 case, it's a juridical institution. That's exactly where I was going to get. It's able to act juridically. It's able to settle controversies and disputes. And this is like the biggest thing that I see lacking uh, within Protestantism. And if to take, for example, the theological debates going on, in the early church, you've got plenty of theological debates, and they get resolved. There's a council that decides it, and there's excommunications that can follow if you continue to hold that belief, and become very clear, as Christians, we believe this, we don't believe that. Within Protestantism, there isn't a, if you're not Presbyterian, you're not a Christian, kind of movement that anyone seriously kind of holds. It's just, well, this is our best guess, and that's your best guess. There's no ability to resolve these things juridically. So we can say this is the best form of Christianity we've found or created, but there's no sense of here's a controversy, and here's the the right answer, the way the Council of Jerusalem does in Acts 15, where it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. Where it's able to speak on behalf of God and say, no, 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 Here's the right answer. Go about your business. So we have this this um, this authoritative, juridical, able to handle uh, disagreement body, which we see is the church. Um, but you say that the papacy is the most distinctive doctrine. Why is that the thing that matters the most? Yeah. So it, for one thing, because if you just knew there was a visible structured church you wouldn't really know if you should be Orthodox, Coptic, or Catholic. Mm -hmm. There's still something that needs further distinguishing. Uh, The papacy is that. If you know the papacy is true, you know the answer to that threefold question, right? Uh, And and it's also distinctive because it's kind of the way Jesus establishes it. That when he talks about creating the church, it's in the context of the papacy. If you read his words in Matthew 16, they're in the form of a blessing to Simon Peter personally where he promises to give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Nobody else gets those. And just like we talked about this binding and loosening authority that the church corporate has in Matthew 18, in Matthew 16, he gives it to Peter individually. And so anyone reading scripture should have to say to themselves, what is going on here? Because Peter seems like he's being given a special, unique role. And what does that mean for the future of the church after the first generation? Because the time when the church needs a visible leader is least in the first generation because it yeah. has Jesus. So the time you you least need the papacy is while Jesus is walking the earth. And yet we see him creating what certainly appears to be the papacy 
in places like Matthew 16. I actually prefer to start with a different place, which is Luke 22, at the Last Supper, when they're debating about which of them is the greatest. Uh, you know, Jesus said, don't, don't lord your authority over others like the Gentiles do. Instead, uh, basically be servant leaders. He says, I'm with you as one who serves. And he gives himself as a leader, a, a model of leadership, the kind of inverted hierarchy of authority, where like the one who's in charge is there to serve those ostensibly below them. And then he says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift all of you as wheat. And I prayed for you, Peter, that your, or you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brethren. So he's just said leadership is service. All the apostles, he, he makes it very clear, are called to serve the church. One of the apostles is called to serve the other 11. And that he's praying for him because of the onslaught of Satan against all of the apostles. Now, that is a remarkably clear instance of Peter being given what we would now call the position of servant of the servants of God. And it, it totally uh, is different from, like, all 12 of you are equal rank and importance and authority, and I prayed for all 12 of you. It, there's a very clear shift from describing how Satan is going after all of them to switching to the singular to saying he's praying for Peter. Now, there's plenty of other places as well. I talk about a lot of these in the book that— we just see Peter being given this particular authority, this particular task. Mm -hmm. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer. The new book is Pope Peter Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in Times of Crisis, available on Catholic Answers. You can get it at catholic.com. There's a lot more to the book than we have time to talk about today. You're going to want to pick that up uh, as soon as possible. Share it with your uh, your friends and uh Maybe even those that you uh, you want to you know go a little bit in a in a spirit of love and charity and and all that's right and just. Joe, thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. If you missed any part of this conversation or you want to share it with your friends, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you can't get enough of it, there's also more content available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And for as little as $5 a month, you get weekly extra segments, including one this week with Joe Heschmeyer. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link up in the top right-hand corner of the page where it says support the show hyphen Patreon. Follow the directions. You can see some of the segments that are there for free just to see and try before you buy. And then consider supporting the show and getting all those goodies week in and week out. Now let's turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and from church history. And that's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. You can get your Verbum Library at Verbum.com. Try it out for free for 30 days and see what you think. Our reading from Scripture comes from this week's gospel. Uh, how did you know? This is one of those things that uh, <laughs> I trust the Holy Spirit, and good gracious, doesn't it just work out well? Um, I did not look ahead at the readings before we picked our, our topic this week. I just wanted to talk to Joe about his new book, and lo and behold, the gospel for Mass tomorrow is Matthew 16. Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew. What stands out to me today is the words, And so I say to you, This is one of those therefore kind of phrases. And whenever there's a therefore, you have to go back and see what it's there for. So here, and so I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Uh, It follows, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You and I and St. Peter have a lot of things that we could reason to, a lot of things that we could figure out by our own intellect or by, uh, by having conversation and learning. But there are some things that we cannot get to by those means, that flesh and blood cannot reveal to us, that we can only learn by being open and listening to the voice of God. And when we are open to doing that, when we allow ourselves... Uh, to learn things and have the Holy Spirit reveal things to us, then we hear from God. And so I say to you, and here is a name change and an identity change and a purpose change. Now, you and I are not ever going to become the Pope, uh, but there are things, there are vocations that we are called to um, that are by virtue of our baptism, by virtue of our confirmation, And I want to hear Jesus say to me, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, therefore I say to you, here is your new name and your new purpose and your new identity. Our reading from church history comes from a treatise to Fortunatus by St. Cyprian. The sufferings of this present time are not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Who would not strive wholeheartedly to attain to such glory? to become a friend of God and straightway rejoice with Christ, receiving heavenly rewards after earth's torments and suffering. Soldiers of this world take pride in returning to their home country in triumph after they have defeated the enemy. How much greater is the glory in returning triumphantly to heaven after conquering the devil? The bold deceiver is laid low. The trophies of victory are restored to the place from which Adam was cast out for his sin. We offer to the Lord a most acceptable gift, our incorrupt faith, the unshaken courage of our spirit, and the glorious pride of our dedication. We accompany him when he takes vengeance on his enemies, sitting at his side at the judgment seat, sharing in Christ's inheritance. We are on an equal footing with the angels and enjoy the possession of a heavenly kingdom together with the patriarchs, apostles, and prophets. What persecution can defeat such thoughts? What torture overwhelm them? The spirit of a strong and stable character strengthened by meditation endures. 
This unshaken spirit, which is strengthened by a certain and solid faith in the future, will be enlivened against all terrors of the devil and threats of this world. During persecution, the earth is closed off from us, but heaven lies open. The Antichrist threatens, but Christ protects us. Death is brought on, but eternal life follows. What an honor! What happiness to depart joyfully from this world, to go forth in glory from the anguish and pain. In one moment, to close the eyes that looked on the world of men, and in the next, to open them at once to look on God and Christ. The speed of this joyous departure, you are suddenly withdrawn from earth to find yourself in the kingdom of heaven. These are the thoughts you must grasp with your heart and mind and reflect on day and night. If persecution should overtake such a soldier of God, it will not overcome one so virtuously prepared for battle. Even if our summons should come sooner, our faith, which was prepared for the witness of martyrdom, will not go unrewarded. For we immediately receive our reward by God's judgment. In times of persecution, the battle wins the crown. But in peace, it is the testimony of a good conscience. That reading comes from a a treatise to Fort Natus by St. Cyprian, and it reminds me of this Flannery O'Connor quote uh, as she's talking about this young girl who would have to be a saint because that was the occupation that included everything you could know, and yet she knew she would never be a saint. But she thought she could be a martyr if they killed her quick. Uh, That's uh, Flannery O'Connor, a good man is hard to find in other stories. Uh, You know, the whole piece is going on and talking about um, looking to eternity and having an eternal perspective and how important that is for us to have an eternal perspective in all matters of life, including that which we were talking about earlier in the show. Um, But at the end of it, and this is where it's just the rubber hits the road, he's talking about how important it is Uh, and the crown of glory that comes with martyrdom. And then that last line just kind of zings us. He says, For we would immediately receive our reward by God's judgment. In time of persecution, the battle wins the crown. Uh, But in peace, it is the testimony of a good conscience. Oh, man, it's hard to have a good conscience. It's hard to be a saint. And yet that's what we're called to. So as members of this church, this body, this flock that Christ tends and that Peter feeds, let us do a couple of things. One, let's not lift our eyes on things too sublime for us, but calm and quiet our soul and sit with Christ. Two, let's pray for the Pope. Pray for our church, but pray for the Pope and pray that God would preserve him and give him wisdom and long life. And lastly, Let us pray with sincerity that God would make us into saints, that the rough edges would be pointed out to us, that the Holy Spirit would bring us into righteousness. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. You can pick up Joe Heschmeyer's new book, Pope Peter, Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in Times of Crisis, over at CatholicAnswersCatholic.com. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Let's have a conversation. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace.